Hi there, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Cloud-Based Mayhem. I am home in Sun Valley, Idaho, and I'm we're camping the rest of the summer as we're, we've rented our house. And so I'm sitting in the library, so the sound might be not exactly what you're used to, but should be pretty good. The show was planned to release last Wednesday, which would have been on time, so I apologize for the delay here, uh, was with Dylan Benedetti, who I'm speaking to actually in a little bit here today because when we submitted all the sound to Miles for editing, it wasn't good enough, and I didn't realize that when we were recording it, so we were having to redo that. So again, apologize for the delay. We were able to uh, put out couple posts about an Ask Me Anything show about this year's race while it's still really fresh and got a ton of great questions. So that's what we're going to fill this week with. And then we'll get back to our regularly scheduled programming as soon as we get this Dylan show done. Before we get to that, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, my friend Stacy Whitmore and their whole amazing team who runs the Monroe Richfield Flying, the Red Rocks Flying that has become the biggest event in North America by far. I think they had over 500 participants last year during COVID and just an awesome place to fly at the end of September, early October. And this year we're adding a hike and fly event kind of based around the Verico Fly and Iger Tour um, races. Of course, we don't have huts here in the States except a few in Colorado, so we can't do that. But We've got all the waypoints insured through Ushba and ready to go. And we will set the course like they do on the Iger the morning of the event. And we've got two categories, the pro category and the adventure category. That time of year is still really good for XC flying in that part of the world. It's absolutely beautiful. All the fall colors are out and this promises to be a really cool race. The adventure race, there are really no qualifications except to be a licensed pilot and be pretty fit and pretty capable solo in the mountains. These are all unsupported, so there's no support teams. You can have a support team, but you don't need it. We'll have supply stations at various waypoints and should be able to just do it on your own. It's a two night, three day race. And for the pro category and to be pro category is going to have as many as 30 uh, participants. And, but to be in the pro category, you've got to have some pretty serious experience. So either you have raced in one of the big events like the Borns to Fly or Verico or Iger or Dolomiti or of course the X-Alps. Um, or you've got to have really solid top landing skills and you could submit video to me and we'll, we've got a little uh, race committee that will go over that. So, and the prize money, first time there's ever been real prize money, especially on this side of the pond, is 5,000 bucks for the winner. So Nick Nanans is coming and Kriegel's hopefully coming and a bunch of others from the X-Alps. So we're working on that. I'll keep updating on that. Pretty fun. There will be a lot more information available soon. We're working on a new website, hopefully, but um, some information available is available now on Quasa, C-U-A-S-A.com. So check it out and reach out to me if you want more information. It should be a blast. This show, yeah, it's an Ask Me Anything with yours truly. Just got home. This show, this race was properly scary. Uh, oftentimes, it was pretty wild. I know a lot of that was picked up on with the live tracking, but a lot of it wasn't. We were dealing with a lot of fern uh, winds that were similar to what we had in 2015, which was my first, but even scarier because a lot of it was fern wind and a lot of thunderstorms. Unbelievable hail, the kind that breaks windshields on cars and a lot of lightning and several fear injuries that took people out of the race and just 
yeah, it was intense. And so let me get into these. And again, while it's still fresh, got some great questions and I'll be happy to answer more as they come in. We just put this up a few days ago and I'm going to try to answer everybody that sent me a message either through Facebook or through the email. Let's dig in. Uh, this was a crazy race. Alan Platner asked, this he said, and actually, this is a long one. I apologize. My question is about the race format. It looks as if a number of pilots got injured or had close calls because of bad flying conditions, but it seems having no fly days makes no sense when the athletes are spread all over the Alps. So I wanted to ask your opinion on changing the race format. For example, the route could be split into five two-day segments. Started each segment as the end of the previous segment. At the end of each these two-day periods, all athletes are taken to the start of the next segment. Athletes who don't make it to the finish of a segment would get negative miles. Athletes who go beyond the finish would get positive miles. At the beginning of the last fifth segment, athletes would start based on their mile balance. The advantage would be the athletes stay closer together, so no fly days would make more sense. Also, it could be more exciting for the athletes and the fans to have everyone fly close together. So let me take this piece by piece. The first is, you know, can they close it down? And the answer really is no. And because of that, we're just too spread out and the abilities are pretty close. But, you know, what might be totally flyable uh, for one person isn't for and might not be for another. And that's just a personal decision. So in this rate, this was the first time I've ever seen a possible race closure. And that was at the Geisberg when we were down in the Mozart Platz. Uh, it was gusting over 50 up on the Geisberg and Christoph came to the athlete committee, which is myself and Tom DeDorlado and Kriegel and said, what are we going to do about this? If we get 32 athletes up there and actually it wasn't 32 because several people weren't able to make the start of this one due to COVID, but I think there was 28 or 29 and he said, there's going to be so much pressure and everybody's going to launch and it's not safe up there. And we agreed. Kriegel came up with an answer that if the five minute average was over 30 K an hour, uh, they'd close the launch. And if it was below that, then they'd open it. By the time we got to the Geisberg, it was, the wind had really backed off and it was a non-issue. But from then on, uh, we very, very frequently flew in conditions way over 50 K an hour, um, way, way beyond recreational and obviously very dangerous. And it did take a few people out of the race for sure, mostly with fear injuries, but yeah, you just wouldn't be able to mandate any kind of thing like that it really has to be up to the the athlete and the pilot and what they're feeling at the time and their own personal decisions and their own personal training so i don't think you can mandate that as for switching the the format of the race uh this is actually something zoom has been discussing for years uh they've they've also talked about this you know, until this year, Kriegel's always so far out in front that they've definitely talked about having it in stages, which would keep everybody together, make it a lot more exciting for the fans. This one was obviously pretty exciting because until day seven, until his breakout magic move, it was really tight. In the top 10, it kind of looked like it was anybody's game until he had that amazing flight in that really strong south fern and uh, covered a lot of ground when Maxime and some of the others hardly went anywhere that day. So, uh, we'll get into that. So there's more questions about that later on in the show. But the problem is, is, you know, forever and ever until 2013, I believe this race was whoever got there, they'd leave it open for 48 hours. And then they changed it because that, you know, the race could potentially take 17, 18 days to get there. And that's just impossible from the organizational standpoint. And it's impossible from the team standpoint. You know, many people have to get back to work. So they, 
changed it to just 12 days. Now, there are some weird rules. If nobody gets there in 12 days, they leave it open for another 24 hours. Or if somebody gets there late on the 12th day, they leave it open for 24 hours. I'm not sure exactly how that goes. That's all in the rules on the website. But basically, it's a 12-day race. And if they do it in stages, they'd have to knock off a bunch of distance, which yeah, they, for various reasons, they don't want to do that. Uh, they like to kind of keep making it harder and longer every time because the teams get better and faster. So we're not sure. You know, that has been presented to them. Uh, the athlete committee is presented to them. And, you know, it's kind of up in the air. But for as for now, I don't really see that changing. But it's a great idea. Next question is from my friend Philip Bethke. Uh, what happened in the first two days? Yeah. Team USA had a really terrifically bad start, and that was new for us. We've always had good starts in the other three races. I'd like to blame it on my physical condition, although I certainly didn't feel that. Uh, I was fine in the prologue. The day before the prologue, I was still kind of having a hard time walking from the crash that I had at the end of the May, and it was kind of looking like, I don't know, but I felt fine in the prologue and I was fast at the top and I flew pretty well. I kind of blew it. I was in fourth leaving the start uh, in the gaggle, but it made a kind of a quick move with Luca and ended up eighth in the prologue, which was fine. That was great. Uh, It was kind of the only decent day of flying we had in the entire race, actually. Yeah, felt fine from that standpoint in the beginning of the race up till about day six until I started taking antibiotics. I was still really fighting this bad flu that I had when I went over there. And I, I can't say that it really affected me physically. I just was coughing up lung cookies like you wouldn't believe all day and all night. So that couldn't have been good. And it certainly once the antibiotics kicked in, it was kind of, oh, this is how you feel when you feel good. So, But I didn't notice that that was affecting anything. It was basically just that nothing we did worked. And it wasn't bad decision-making necessarily. It was just I just wasn't making the moves in the air. And every time we'd get to a launch, you know, it, it just didn't work. I was just totally out of cycle with the sky and the sun and the aspect. And uh, from the very beginning, you know, when I launched, I think I launched 7th or 8th off the Geisberg and – Everybody was together there. Base was really low. It was there was a ton of Stratus and Sirius that day, and uh, and quite a bit of wind. And you know when the first fleet left, I was with I was right with Kriegel, you know, just cruising around at the at the start there. And when the first fleet left, I was you know 15 meters lower than everybody else, and I just you know it was going to be a really slow, struggling day, and I didn't want to be impatient, so I waited. And then when the second fleet left, same thing. I was a little bit low. And then the and then there wasn't many of us left. There was Manu and Theo and a few others. Some of them top landed and waited for better conditions. Theo and I almost bombed out, which would have been terrible, but we survived. And then we all, Manu and Theo and I and Michael Latcher and a few others left. And uh, it was just a struggle. By then there was more clouds. So we kind of missed our best window made it about 20 K down course line. Most of us landed and Michael squeaked through. And, uh, and then we, and we, should we fly? Should we not fly? Should we not, you know, some of the people in front of us had bombed out in this kind of pretty treed Canyon. Anyway, it just didn't work. You know, by the time Theo and Manu and I got to another launch, it was really windy. We made it work. We launched Manu to- chose a totally different route, which ended up working better for him. Um, I, you know, Theo and I got a decent glide down to the valley. He decided to walk and that was a much better decision. I decided to race up and try to launch again before 9 p.m. 
and launched in a ton of headwind and almost went backwards on course line. So that didn't work out and nothing did the next day either. I think the next day I did eight flights and almost 5,000 meters of ascent and it was over a hundred degrees. And, uh, and most of them were just sledders or just trying to survive. And so, yeah, it just didn't work for us in the beginning. We slid way back. Uh, that of course makes it harder because you're working a lot harder. And the third day was again, pretty hot. And then we started getting the thunderstorms that afternoon, um, getting into Akintal did make up a bunch of ground that day as we did in the subsequent days. But, you know, by then the, the damage had been done. So it was, you know, it was disappointing at the same time, you know, we knew it was a long race. We knew other people would hit airspace and make mistakes and bow out of the race. And to some extent we were able to really claw back. You know, I think we made, made up ground on pretty much everybody at Kriegel for most of the rest of the race. We had, you know, some days were better than others, but I was super proud of the effort and incredibly proud of the team. Everybody stayed wicked optimistic. We had a blast. That was always the goal was just to have fun and come home safe and stick with the process and stick with our plan, which we always did. And sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't. Uh, Alejandro, so many things to comment on. Can you talk about airspace and all the mess that went on with the pilots infringing it or not? And also about the issues with some pilots and turn points on the prologue. Let me tackle that first. Yeah, airspace has really become a problem in this race. In the beginning, they only really cared about the big ones, the CTRs and that kind of thing, but complaints. But because this the race is so public, they've really got to adhere to airspace. And then now they just care about more and more and more, all the parks and the no landing areas. And I mean, there was just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of airspaces and they were switching them on us right up until the start. And this makes it really tough. You know, you got to update the Flymaster. You're going to update your phone. You got to stay on top of it. Some, some are open some days and closed other days. You know, like when I went through uh, the Rhone Valley, the wings of the CTR at Sion airspace were open. You, you could fly through them. And other days they were closed for others. And that's what Theo hit. I'm not sure if he hit the CTR or one of the wings, but yeah, it's just something you really got to be on top of. And you really need someone on your team. If you're not really good at airspace, like I'm not, you need somebody on your team like Revis, who's really good. And he could update my stuff on the fly. He was constantly sending me new files before I'd take off about stuff that I needed to worry about and others that I didn't need remove. So if you don't have that, it makes it pretty tricky. The other thing is having a great setting on your phone. If you use something like Fly Sky High, if you have you can have a side view, which shows the airspace in front of you and if you could be over it or under it. Um, so I've never had trouble with airspace. I, I've, I've never had, I've never hit it on in any of the races, um, but many people did. And yeah, it's just, it's a huge bummer and it's a real mess and it's becoming harder and harder for the organization to handle and also deliver to us in a timely fashion what we have to worry about and what we don't. So it gets people every time and yeah, it's a bummer for sure. But yeah, I don't see that really changing. Uh, the, the turn points in the prologue, what they continue to do and, and the athlete committee has been incredibly vocal about this and hopefully this will not be the case in the future, but they give us 50 meter cylinders and you know, at the third turn point, it, I spent 1500 feet going up in a five meter climb trying to hit the damn thing. And 50 miller cylinder. I don't know why they do that. It's ridiculous. I'm assuming they just aren't race pilots and 
Uh, we've asked them to change that. We've asked them to give us an into speed section for the prologue, which they don't do. And so the landing was just chaos because you got all these pilots that are really good that are trying to land as close as they can to the Red Bull uh, tent thing that you got to go through when the clock stops. So if you had an into speed like they do in World Cups, it'd be way safer and you wouldn't have a gallery of people all over the place. And yeah, it was it was mayhem. So hopefully that will change. There's no point in having 50. I mean, we had a 50 meter cylinder in the 2017 race in Triglov and it took me maybe 30 passes to try to hit it. Sounds easy, but you know, when you're really struggling on a super stable day and you're barely surviving and you're trying to hit this thing in the air uh, and your instruments are obviously there's lag time there. Um, yeah, it's ridiculous. That's all I can say. It just, it doesn't work and it needs to change. How did you keep motivation in the first days with the bad weather, the wrong decisions, and finding yourself so much back? Could you also comment on the gear? Has the super light been taken too far with pilots having issues with flying a wet glider? And should there be a minimum parachute size? So, yeah, I want a bunch of stuff here. Let me take these one by one. Motivation, I didn't struggle with too much. I mean, for sure, it wasn't the start that we wanted. But like I said, it was. it's a long race. You know things are going to happen. You just have to stay optimistic. You've put a year and a training into it and way too early to bow out. And I knew from previous editions that I think it would have been really tough if this was my first race, but I knew from previous editions that, you know, we know how to make moves and we would make moves and we just had to kind of keep our head in the grindstone. And, you know, we had this kind of motivational sign. Thomas Therlow actually helped me with working with him this winter upright in the van. And, you know, one of the things on it is love the grind. And so we just, that just became what we did. Love the grind, keep grinding and it'll work out. And, uh, you know, we knew in the first couple of days that we were no longer going to be in contention for anything great, but, you know, look at what Manu did. Uh, he was way back with me and he ended up sixth. So, you know, and, you know, I beat Manu back in 2015. So, I mean, we all have similar skills. A lot of the guys that beat me this time, I've beaten in the past. It's just, you know, that's how the race goes. And uh, the cookie crumbles in a lot of different ways. Ways, And you just got to stay positive. And so, to be honest, I don't feel like I had a lot of trouble with that. Um, you know, for sure, it was really hot the first two and a half, three days. And I struggled with the heat. And that was probably more of a hard thing, especially when you're just walking down the road and really busy roads that, you know, one huge bridge, I had to actually walk on the railing and, you know, it was 300 foot drop off. It's probably one of those dangerous things I did the whole race. Wasn't even flying. I was just walking on this thing with tons of traffic going by. So that kind of thing kind of sucks, but motivation wise, we never really lost it. The super light side of things. Uh, yes, of course it has. Um, you know, we're all flying with tiny reserves, you know, the, the really high end, the new harnesses this year were all less than a kilo. Mine was 1.3, the Kalibri Pro, which I really liked, but they don't have much protection and they're super flimsy and they're not very good when you're flying two liners, which we all are now. So yeah, for sure. It's been taken too far, but it adds up to metric tons when you add it over the course of the 12, 13 days. So it makes a huge difference. Kriegel pioneered all that back in 2009 when he showed up for his first. And I don't think it's going away, but it's certainly it's a warning to most pilots out there that, you know, you need a, you should definitely be flying. You should carry an extra 200 grams and have a bigger reserve. I proved that when I crashed in, in the end of May, I had, you know, one of my tiny little XLs reserves and had that been bigger, I probably wouldn't have hit nearly so hard. 
So yeah, I mean, you just have to choose what's right for you and maybe not, maybe not push that envelope too far. Cause you know, I think what is important is that it's all a compromise and you're definitely compromising on, on passive safety when you go the super light stuff, the wet glider thing. Yeah. This would be a bit of advice for someone going into a race like this. I had a second set of gear, a complete set of gear. So an extra backpack, an extra wing, all, you know, all I had to do was switch the instruments in my helmet and I had a, a you know, legitimate race kit. Now I wasn't flying that second wing cause it wasn't all logoed up, but very often I was landing either in really wet grass or landing after I'd gotten some rain in the sky. Luckily I was never in the sky in, in a real proper deluge, which some of the pilots were, you know, I could just switch it out as, as long as the van could get to me, I could switch it out and have light, have dry gear that I could carry that was legitimate and had all the stuff in it, you know, the flare and everything else. And, um, but it didn't have all the weight of my wet glider and then my team could dry it all out. So, uh, that was really key. I had backups, everything, XE tracer, Flymaster, flare, wing, harness, everything. I had backups for everything. So I could just switch it out. And that was, that was really advantageous. Reserve size I've, I've commented on. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you just don't want to push that too much. It's better to carry the extra weight and have a proper reserve. All in, in the photos from you, it seems your backpack is too big to be comfortable, way too far away from your back. And that backpack, it was the Cortell, it was a prototype. It was too big, uh, and that was my fault. I just, I like to be able to not have to be completely anal about packing my gear. So, but they, but it definitely could have been smaller, but it was incredibly comfortable. It's an awesome pack, and I, I really, really loved it. From Nadine Weiss, um, I would be interested in how you perceive the risks of these, the risk of these events. It seems as if more and more pilots are inspired to challenge the no flying conditions and think that anything is possible, but it seems that most of the athletes take a very calculated risk where, and what is the difference to a recreational pilot? Yes, I think we do take a calculated risk, but you also get in a crazy mind frame in this race and this race more than any of the others I've been in with the exception of 2015, we did fly in a ton of wind and it took a lot of people out, you know, and it, they don't report, I'll get into this later. They don't really report on the bad side of things. It's just a Red Bull dictate, but the, you know, Toma almost died in 2015. Tom the was helicoptered out. I don't know, six or seven people went down to injuries. Um, 2017 was also another bad year. So it seems to be, we lose kind of 20 to 30% every time, but this one, was proper scary. And I had a number of crashes. There's a film that will be out probably by the time this goes live that has a bunch of those. Uh, and um, proper scary, flying in a ton of wind. This is just way, I can't emphasize this enough, way, way, way beyond anything recreational. And, and in my opinion, beyond anything that most of us should be doing, even ex-Alps pilots, yeah, maybe with the exception of Kriegel and Maxime, but Paul, he, he doesn't seem to mind. Aaron, you know, they don't seem to mind really extreme conditions, but it's vastly extreme. And the, some of the stuff we were flying, I mean, I was regularly flying in 50 K an hour winds and pretty okay with it. And, uh, and some of the phone days were just terrifying. And again, pretty okay with it. 
you know, just laughing it off. The whole day I had flying down from Fish down the Rhone, you know, I had a monstrous tailwind and way too much wind for the thermals to even be a thing, even and it was totally gray anyway. And I basically ridge soared down the Rhone. Uh, you know, I just plant myself onto one of the kind of north-south facing ridges and I wouldn't even need to turn. I just sit there and just take the elevator up and at full bar until I couldn't hang on anymore and huck over the back and do it again and again and again. Slow planted when it was about to dump rain and hit out under a cow thing uh, high and an hour later I was back in the air and it wasn't sunny, but it was just wasn't raining anymore and kept going. And, you know, I would never certainly comfortably fly on a day like that at home. And most days were like that. And so, you know, going around Mont Blanc was even worse in a strong north for a day. And so, yeah, it's extreme. And it's definitely, I don't think, you know, that one day that Kriegel had the big flight and then he was asked how his flight was and he just said it was bad or something. I mean, it was like it was one word. It was just the hardest flight he'd ever had in his life. I'm sure he was pretty scared. Sounded like he was catching a lot of collapses. That's Kriegel. And, you know, he regularly trains in 60K an hour wind and stuff in the snow. So uh, I, I just can't emphasize enough that this race, you know, on a year like that, you know, 2019, we had no wind. You could launch anywhere. And there was, there was quite a few thunderstorms and stuff, but hardly any gust fronts, no wind, no fern. And I think for many that, that was their first year. We're just blown away by the difference that you can have from one one race to the next. You know, for those who are contemplating doing the X Alps and competing in something like this, you just have to know that that's what you're taking on, and you have to be pretty good at judging: Is this? Do I have this move? Do I? Can I fly in these conditions? And like I said, you do get in this crazy, confident headspace where you can handle it. Um, or you don't, and we lost a few people. I'll talk about that here in a bit to, to fear injuries and they're, you know, they're very real. As far as calculated risk, I don't know how calculated it is. I, you know, I'd like to think we're all taking calculated risk, but at the end of the day, you know, you huck or you don't. And, you know, I know Tom Dorlado got to a few places really tall and decided it just wasn't flyable and walked down. And, you know, maybe some of the other pilots would have decided it was okay. Uh, certainly there have been quite a few times where it probably wasn't okay and I launched and, and you know, it made it work. So, yeah, carnage. There was definitely a lot of carnage in this one like there has been in, in other hike and fly races. And again, I think that's just what you've got, you know, that there hasn't been worse carnage is just is almost a miracle. And Knock on wood, that'll keep happening, but it doesn't seem like that's likely. Secondly, she said, what did you do for nutrition in this race? Mainly fat and proteins again. Yes, to an extent. I really tried to stay with the OFM protocol, which is the optimized fat metabolism. And I did for about the first five days, uh, real heavy on, on protein, real heavy on fat and not a lot of food, you know, letting my body be the fuel instead of glycogen and carbs. And for some reason, this race, that just wound down. I found that my brain wasn't working very well. And when I switched that to, I didn't really switch it consciously. I just started craving more. Uh, I started eating these huge bowls of oatmeal with lots of nuts and butter and milk in the mornings and adding 
quite a bit more carbs, you know, more pasta and that kind of thing in the evenings and just started eating a ton more food. We didn't go that route in 2019. I kind of stayed with the OFM throughout and this one, it just didn't seem to work as well. And so we started adding more carbs and my brain started working better. I definitely started racing better. And um, a lot of the issues I was having went away and I, I, wasn't, I wasn't having like GI issues, that kind of thing, but I was definitely suffering a little bit with brain fog and that, that cleared up. And so it was basically a combo and that worked, that worked great. The big difference in this race from the previous ones were my feet. I didn't have any feet problems. I used the Njiji toe socks with smart wool outers and it was really wet this year. So the dozen or so shoes I had paid off because we were constantly switching them. And there were times where all of them were wet, but I was really very anal about keeping my feet dry and had one bad blister on one toe early on, didn't even hurt. And then that popped and kind of went away and just dried up and the rest of the race, I was totally fine. So that worked great. That was, that was a huge uh, positive change from previous events. Jim Furman and Chris Brent both asked pretty similar questions, so I've kind of combined them. What were some of the fear injuries that were encountered? I heard Lori Genovese had some sort of incident, and I know Theo did, but I missed the breakdown. Um, and were you disappointed that Cody withdrew when it looked like he might be eliminated when he could have just waited out the clock? So yeah, I've commented on that uh, about Cody. Well, again, I know he's put out a, a post on Facebook. I haven't seen it yet, but yeah, I can comment on all this. So yeah, the, the the physical injuries, the first was Kanaguma. Uh, well, first, the the reporting. So like I said before, the Red Bull, there's a dictate, which I didn't understand until actually after this race, because I had the same question. Why aren't we seeing that stuff? It just seems so interesting, and the fans would appreciate it. I mean, if you weren't following the actual athlete on their Instagram, you didn't get any of that. And it's actually a dictate from Red Bull. They don't, they don't want anything bad, quote unquote, bad out there. Why? I don't know. I can't really understand that. So it just seems totally wrong to me. Uh, but that's what they do. So I encourage you in the future to just follow the people you like on their Instagram and or Facebook and you'll get more information. But the first major injury was Ken Aguma, the Japanese pilot. We noticed that because suddenly his his little guy went way north and it ended at a hospital. So I'm not sure if he was flown there or if he was driven there, but he had a leg injury and that's all I know. I didn't get to see him at the awards afterwards. Uh, Luca and Theo hit the, well, Luca didn't hit it, but he spun his glider and pounded hard um, to miss a cable up in the Clausen Pass. Theo actually hit his and destroyed his glider and luckily was able to have another glider uh, for him put together real quick and he was able to continue on. I can't comment if he had a fear injury or not, probably not knowing Theo, but he, he did a really good post about it. He said it was the scariest thing that had ever happened in his flying career. This is, you know, if not the best aircraft pilot in the world, certainly one of the best. Luca, incredibly good pilot, uh, spun his glider and hit pretty hard. He was helicoptered out, but then uh, just to be safe and he was okay. And then he did the honor code thing, which we all should do if we're at the back. He just sat down and waited. And so that was the day that Cody and I walked by him and, and uh, Ogie was, had made a flight a little ways up the Rhine. And so we were all kind of in contention for being eliminated next. So he very kindly did what you're supposed to do, which is just sit down. Cause he was, he wasn't 
hurt enough that he wanted to keep going, but he wasn't hurt enough that he um, that he wanted to continue. So he was eliminated. And the next elimination was between Cody, myself, Lori, and Ogie. We were all kind of in the back. Uh, I had a really pretty good day in that South Fern where Kriegel made his big move going the other way, uh, flying in an absolute ton of wind, probably the most wind I'd ever flown in. And I had texted Cody, who we were up on the Clausen Pass together, but I chose, a, I think, a little better decision that morning, doing a couple little glides. And then I top landed near Bend to get uh, water and some more stuff and just check in with him. And I top landed near a pilot who, another pilot, recreational pilot, who wasn't going to fly, but he was just up there. And I saw him, so I flew over, landed there, and there was there was a road that the Land Rover could get up to us on, and uh, and he was looking at all the wind ob's, live wind ob's in in the area, and you know it was gusting over fifty at the peak tops, and you could see it. The South Fern was just dumping in, and I'm really quite a bit more terrified of South Fern than the North Fern because of previous experiences, not in the race, but just training in the Alps, and. Uh, and I had to get up to the Rhone to to get to Fish, and that exposes me to the Andermatt Pass where Lori was and where she sat most of the day, and also the Arolo Pass, which is one of the major breaks that the South Fern can come through. So we really struggled with, okay, how do we get through here? Should we just walk? Uh, should I try to fly? Should I stay more north? Which is what we ended up doing. And you'll see in the film that I, I top landed on the snowfield up above 3,000 meters, kind of near Engelberg and near Titlis, which is where we were in the previous race. So I knew that area. And uh, it was insanely rowdy, uh, but very beautiful and kind of cool. And we made some great ground until I got to the pass above um, the Grimsel, which leads down to the Marine and airspace. And I couldn't get over the peaks there to dump into the room, which is what I was really hoping to do. Every time I got to about 2,500, the South Fern would slam me and lose the glider. And and, uh, and I tried and tried and tried. And every time I got my head up high, it just slammed me. And so I had to land in the pass and relaunch and then fly down um, towards the Marine and airspace, which is really low and kind of got went underneath it as far as I could and landed. And then I had to walk I think from there, almost 30K and about 7,500 feet to get up to the Grimsel Pass where Ogie and Lori flew later that afternoon and got a little bit of a jump on me heading down to Fish. So it ended up working in terms of making a lot of ground, but it also meant I was still in last and was going to be next on the chopping block. And that's when we got the news that uh, that Cody just DNF'd. And yeah, so Cody, uh, I was... That morning, when I learned about the 50k an hour winds, I texted him and just said, "Hey, buddy, heads up! It's going to be really rowdy today, and you know we're we're kind of going the wrong way for this for this kind of condition, and uh, just be careful." And he just texted back. He said, "I'm I'm over it. I'm done." And I didn't think to remind him that you know when you don't don't DNF, just sit and hang out or just walk or you know just be safe. And he'd had some pretty rowdy flights and just definitely was game over. He just, he wasn't into it. I'd caught up with him at Santis the day before and we had a nice flight together and you could just tell he just, he, his head wasn't in the game anymore. And which is totally understandable, especially considering the, some of the stuff that he'd been flying in, he'd been having a really good race, but yeah, he was just kind of over it. And I think he just lost the plot. You know, that's kind of the honor code. That's what you do. You just sit down and, 
you become the next one eliminated. If he hadn't done what he did, then Theo wouldn't have been eliminated in a couple of days. And in the end, it didn't affect me, but I certainly thought at the time it would. And I was pretty bummed and very vocal with him. I think I put out something on Instagram that probably wasn't very polite. Um, but yeah, we were all bummed. And then it turned out that Lori, uh, to answer the rest of this question, Lori, a few days earlier, going into Lermus, uh, she signed the board and she was having a really good race, went up, launched in a, sounds like pretty proper thunderstorm and uh, a lot of rain and her wing went parachutal and she was right over big high tension power lines and through a reserve. And luckily that worked. It put her in the trees instead of the power lines, but then it took quite a while to get her out and get her rescued. She went back up. I I heard three times. I never got to ask her this personally. I don't know if it was twice or three times and bombed out and just didn't get anywhere. And so had about the roughest day you possibly could. Lori's an insanely good pilot, really good World Cup pilot. And like I said, was having a great race and super inspiring and just, um, yeah, freaked her out as it did with Cody. And so when I was kind of on the chopping block, couple of days later, going into Fish, it was going to be the next morning was the elimination, or maybe it was that morning, I can't remember. She and Ogie were a little bit ahead of me, and she sent me a text as I was taking these little glides down the goms down to get down to Fish early, early in the morning, uh, that I didn't have to race anymore, that she was just going to sit and wait it out. So she did the what you're supposed to do, kind of the honor code thing, which we all know to do. And that was very kind of her. I caught up with her and Fish. I was a couple K behind her at that point and signed the board. We had a nice hug. And um, yeah, I think that was a very good decision that she made. It was, it didn't get any better. It got a lot more rowdy. And so, yeah, she had a great race. Hats off to her and everybody else. But yeah, that's, that's what happened to, to Lori and to Cody. I don't know, you know, Theo certainly had a really bad day when he got the dent to Osh. He'd hit airspace the day before, maybe the same day. And uh, so that was going to hit him hard with the 48-hour penalty. But he he also stayed stationary for a long time. I think also the weather was terrible where he was, even worse than it was for some others. And so I'm not sure if it was just a weather thing or if he was just over it as well. I never got to ask Theo about that. Olivia asked... Uh, I would like to hear more of the breakdown of the incidents, the reserve throw, the power lines. Yes, yeah, so I've just covered that with with Lori. Some of the other incidents, uh, I don't, yeah, I don't actually know more about those. I can certainly comment on mine, and I will do here in just a little bit. Davis Straub, uh, it seemed like the race commentary was a bunch of happy talk, but then Kriegel just mentioned a bit about how dangerous things were, rotor and collapses. Please link to where the real reporting was going on for the, was it the Red Bull X-Ops addicts? Yeah, like I said, this is disappointing. And I, I've taken it up with some of the journalists and, you know, Cross Country Magazine had this thing, you know, uh, Red, Red Bull X-Alps unvarnished. You know, I was doing calls with them in the first few days of the race, but it, it didn't really work that well. So I'm, I don't know if they kept that going. I know they did one with Tom Dodorlado as well. Tom just put up a podcast uh, on Red Bull Adventure. It was about 30 minutes that I listened to yesterday. That was great. It kind of had audio from most of the days of his race. So you can get some more from that. But the best commentary, honestly, was from everybody's Instagram. You know, some people do that a lot, like Paul and Kriegel and myself and Tom and some others, Manu. You know, he had he had some videos on there landing backwards and a lot of wind, a lot of valley wind and stuff. So 
that's the best place. I have critiqued this and talked to the race organization many times. I find most of the reporting to be pretty puff PC type stuff that's centered on the sponsors and not on what's really going on. And I can say that now because I'm not doing it again. But yeah, I think a lot of the reporting, frankly, is pretty weak and certainly could be a lot better and a lot more real. And that's that's a bummer. What about the training that Kriegel does? Prepare for this race, flies in high wind. Does anyone else do that? Yes, I certainly do a lot of it. I know many of the others do a ton of it. He's obviously the best and he's he was the one that introduced all that, you know, flying behind cornices to find out how much wind you can actually fly in in the Lee. Um, you know, like Kelly Farina talks about in his book, anything over 15K an hour in the Lee is way too rowdy. Well, I can promise you that we're flying very often in 50K an hour in Lee. It's not recommended. It's absolutely gnarly. It's incredibly dangerous, but it's what many of us had to do, or if not all of us had to do over and over and over again. So I think many train for it, and, uh, and but sometimes you just have to stick your nose in and see how it goes. Uh, it can be pretty scary. Any thoughts on official wind speed limits? I mean, to me, 30K an hour in the mountains is still really top end and incredibly dangerous. And in this race, we were flying in way more than that on almost every day. So there you go. I don't, you know, it's hang glider speeds, it's hang glider winds, and we're doing it on paragliders. Is it safe? No, it's, it's not. Landing on roads, really, this is okay, sort of taken as normal. Yeah, we all land on roads. You know, there was there's video of me kind of crashing into a little small tree, and people asked why I didn't land on the road. What you can't see from the video is until that moment, it had been really busy and there was no shoulder whatsoever. And then there's train tracks and power lines on one side. And so I just chose what I felt like was the safer option of landing in these trees. And there was a little bit of grass and it wasn't too bad. The way I did it, maybe I think I could have helicoptered in there better just by, you know, doing really controlled deep stalls, uh, really almost fly back and then letting the wing snap back into position, which the climber does incredibly well. You can almost just take it straight down like a helicopter, but I chose the way I did uh, and it worked out, but it could have been certainly worse. Spun it because I had to right before just to not hit a tree, caught that and then landed. So, but very often I landed on roads four or five times in this race and you know, you just have to judge that from the air many, many, many times. That's literally to get two or 300 more meters. And that kind of risk is, you know, I actually crashed pretty hard coming into fish. I mean, I didn't make it into fish, but a couple, few K short of fish. Literally, I had a huge field that I could have landed in and I was trying to get another 200 meters and ended up coming in pretty hard on my butt on a rock that I didn't see trying to clear this fence my whole swoop thing didn't work as well as I did. And I kind of stalled the wing right before I landed. And that kind of risk is I was really hard on myself about that. That's just unnecessary. So I think oftentimes it's literally just because there's nowhere else to put it in, or you've just passed up a pretty decent launch or sorry, LZ, and you just want the extra distance. I mean, everything we can do in the sky is easier. So sometimes, yeah, I think it's pretty, pretty silly. What about the great dividing point? When, as I vaguely recall, I don't seem to be able to use a Wayback Machine to go to the previous day on live tracking. Maurer, Pinot, uh, Patrick, Cannell, and Outers, Benoit were all very close in front, and then Maurer just blew them away by taking a different route to the north. 
Yeah, I've got some pretty funny thoughts on this, although I wasn't able to confirm this with Kriegel. So the day Davis is talking about, I think it was day seven, uh, Maxime was ahead about 20K, but they both landed near Visp almost in the same spot. Um, but obviously Maxime landed first. And the huge question is, why would you take a different line when you're literally in, in Kriegel's backyard and you know that he's capable of making huge magic moves? I asked the guys at Cortell this because they caught up with me when I flew over Solange on getting around um, uh, Mont Blanc. And, you know, I just said, you know, did he just fake them out? Did he do what Kriegel often does, which is, you know, probably kind of walked slowly and let Maxime go because he knew Maxime would. And Maxime headed up to the Simplon and Kriegel stayed north, stayed in the Rhone. And the next day just had that massive breakout flight. So on that strong South Fern day. So, you know, if it's South Fern, you know the weather's going to be strong, better in the north, but it's also going to be pretty rowdy. And he stayed on the north side which is going to give him the best chance. So you're not totally in the lee, of course, stay on the south side, but had a huge day. And why didn't the others do that? I, you know, obviously everybody's looking at their own weather stuff and, you know, it's, it's all a gamble. In some ways it's a coin toss. And uh, I'm sure the thought there was that if you're, if you could stay on the south side, you're going to be in a better place to make distance more safely. But of course, you're going to have lower base and maybe more rain and that kind of thing. And that's exactly what those guys got. They got a lot more wind. It was pretty unlaunchable. Most of them walked and Kriegel had the huge day. You know, I think in retrospect, I'm sure Maxime wonders why he didn't follow Kriegel. Just wait and slow down. It's just not in our DNA. You know, you hit the ground, you pack up fast and you start moving. And I'm sure Maxime thought that he could make a better move there. But yeah, I'm sure he'll be kicking himself for years on that one. Uh, I think that this race enforced yet again, you know, the talk at the beginning is always, is this going to be the year that Kriegel gets taken down? Certainly this was closer than any. I mean, he's never been in, under this kind of pressure. He's always gotten out in front, stays there the whole race. Uh, this one was really tight until that day. In fact, most of the time he wasn't even in the lead. And so, you know, but you know he's going to make a magic move and he once again proved it. And to, for him to get in there in nine days, just absurd. Or any of those guys, all the top five that made it, just unbelievable performances. And hats off to him. It's incredible. I, the weather that we were battling was unbelievable. And that those guys made it is just so, man, it's so epic. Terry Hansen, uh, what do the athletes think of not ending in Monaco? And do you think the future of the race will also not end there? Definitely, I think the future of the race will not end there. That's been a real pain for the organization. Uh, it sucks for the athletes. It is neat to get to the sea. Luckily, I did it in 2015. But so I got to see what that was like. You know, the principle of the race was always to cross the entire Al Alps. And so we've lost that. And I know that's definitely disappointing to the rookies, definitely disappointing to anyone who never got there uh, for sure. But as I've said many times, Monaco does suck. It's incredibly hot. It's incredibly dangerous down there. It's, and that's when you're really tired in the race. It's just brutal. And so I think for everyone who has gotten there, this was a ref hugely refreshing change and much safer. 
there's no fans down there and it's really hard for the race organization because the, the roads are tough down there. They always had a very hard time getting permission and nobody cared in Monaco. That's more an F1 thing and big boats and big money. So nobody cared that the, the X-Alps ended down there. So I definitely don't think that that's going to be the future. I think the future will be more like the race we saw this year. And it was awesome. It, it was it was great to do that. It was awesome to have an out and back. It was great to not have to be constantly battling headwinds like we normally do. And I think it's I think it's pretty exciting. I know that there was some disappointment, especially among the rookies, that we weren't going to Monaco because that's kind of what it's all about. But in the end, I think for the most part, everybody really enjoyed the enjoyed the change. Andy Reid. One thing I'd like to know is why the reporting consistently ignores the support teams. Every competitor will tell you how important their team is, and yet year after year, the support teams are totally overlooked. They all have incredible stories to tell, but Red Bull just wants films of the pilots. Are they not interested in the human interest side of it? Can't comment on that. I wasn't able to put that question to the reporting teams. Um, I know it's certainly something that everybody thinks about and certainly, you know, they, I have seen stories about, you know, how important the support teams are, but they don't, you're right. They don't do a ton of reporting on it. I think a lot of it's just bandwidth, uh, to, to put it, you know, I, it's just, I asked Tarquin, for example, afterwards, you know, why wasn't this reported on that reported on? And they just, there's not enough people. There's not enough budget to do it, you know, like it, you know, could be done. I'm sure that, you know, they try to do the best they can. They have video teams and reporting teams all over the place, but in the end, it's really hard to keep up with the teams. They're moving insanely fast, faster and faster every race. And, you know, I'm sure a lot of it's just, you know, what can we cover? What can't we? Again, a lot of the reporting has to keep going back to the sponsors. I think that's really unfortunate, but yeah, that's a big hole for sure. And, Hopefully that the race order will listen to this and, and maybe that'll be a bigger thing in the future. The, the, the support teams are just insanely critical. I, you know, we have a blast. I can't imagine doing this without the team that I have. In fact, I wouldn't. And, and many times more fascinating what's going on there than what's going on with the athlete. So you're, you're totally right. I don't have a good answer for you there, Andy. Thomas, related question. Would you consider being a supporter for another pilot? Your knowledge and experience is surely invaluable. What do you think about the new format and could it be improved for 2023? By the new format, I'm sure he's talking about the, the course. I think the course is great. I, that was a huge refreshing yeah, comment on that, but I love it. I, I've always hated Monaco. How could it be improved? We just provided a whole bunch of feedback to the race organization. I think the one major thing is just to extend the the rest period, at least a half an hour. I think it, it is truly dangerous how little sleep we get. And these days with very rare exception, you know, I think twice in the race, we shut it down early the night before, just because we were in position to be on a perfect launch at 6am the next morning, which is when we're allowed to fly. You're allowed to move between five and 1030 at night. Um, and you're allowed to fly between 6 a.m. and 9 p.m. And it just didn't make any sense to keep walking because then I would be in a valley or something at 6 a.m. So, you know, we, we tried every day to have a flight somewhere around 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning to just get a glide, get 6 to 10 or 12K, or hopefully if it was catabatic and we got really lucky, you could get more than that. But 
Um, that was just the style that we wanted to do. It's the style that most of the teams, you know, I did this massive study of Avery of the last few races this whole winter. And most of the really exceptional teams in the top 10 are all flying once in the morning, at least before the big part of the day. And then again in the evening, you know, the kind of last little flight between eight and 9 PM. And so we really tried to emulate that for the most part. It worked. Sometimes it was a big win. Sometimes it was, would have been better just to walk, but I think it's important to do. And so those were the twice, I think in the race, we shut it down before 1030 otherwise, because we were in position like that. Otherwise it was start at five, go to 1030 as, as a lot of the, especially the teams at the front did. So if you lengthen that rest period, a half an hour, I just think it'd be a lot safer. Other than that, you know, there's a lot of things that they could do that I think would make it more entertaining, like having the stage race, that kind of thing, more like the Tour de France. But, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there's there's challenges with that, and I'm not sure that's going to really happen. Would I be a supporter for another pilot? I would, of course. I'm going to support – I was planning on supporting Ben for the Owens thing that Logan was running, although I heard that he's just canceled that for lack of interest – if Ben or if Ben ever decided to do something like the X-Pier, I would support him in that. My hesitancy is that I wouldn't be great. I wouldn't be like Revis or Ben or the other members of my team just because I'm I'm not very technical. So I'm not very good at the computer and the weather stuff like Revis is. And I'm not very just military in terms of diligence and organization like Ben is. I mean, I'm up at 4.40 in the morning I have a quick bite to eat that Revis has made me and I grab my stuff and I go and all my instruments are on. They've been charged all night. My watch has been charged. My instrument, everything's ready to roll. And Ben is doing that on no sleep. He gets, those guys get less sleep than I do. And so I'm just not very pedantic. I'm not very thorough. It's not my personality. So I'd have to really work at that. I think my experience would be helpful, but from the pilot side and those are skills that, you know, that aren't very easy to pass along. The, the person I'd be supporting has to have those skills ingrained and have them anyway. So uh, I'm not sure I'd be great at it, but of course, if somebody asked me, I would, but only my team. It's, it's, it's an insanely hard endeavor. It's very, very time consuming. There's a particular style that Team USA has that I would want to have. And so I, I wouldn't certainly wouldn't take it lightly, but I would consider it for, for someone who has supported me, of course. Um, ben Netterfield asked, did you find it hard to switch on and off at the end of the day and actually get rest or something's playing around in your head, especially once the fatigue set in? Yeah, I had a hard time sleeping, especially the first few days. I used things to help with that. Nothing like Ambien, but you know, various supplements. And I, I used this stuff from Onnit called New Mood. And I used Finibit that Revis would give me and I used melatonin and just things to kind of quiet down for the first few days, especially day two, because you're kind of, or sorry, night number two, because you're not the night right before the race, but the second one. Uh, I try to bank as much sleep as I can in the weeks before the race. And that might just be lying down. You don't, they've proved that you don't necessarily need to sleep, but just lying down, relaxing, meditating. I do that as much as I possibly can before the race starts. And I've sailed around the world a couple of times, so I'm pretty good at sleep deprivation. Um, this whole race, usually those guys have to like shake me awake. And this whole race, you know, they'd wake up and 10 minutes later, I'd be up and out of bed working on my feet. 
having some food and be ready to roll. I was just excited. I was excited. I was stoked. I was, I was really excited to catch up and just keep grinding. And I was kind of in it the whole time. So I don't think I had too much trouble with that. Uh, yeah, it is an issue after day five or six. I mean, when I have dinner, I would just fall asleep in my bed. In fact, well, one of the questions here that we're going to get to is one of the funniest things that happened. And one of those was I fell asleep when those, when Revis was making dinner. This was one of the times where we were able to shut it down early because we were in a good position for the next day. And, uh, and Revis kind of shook me awake and he said, okay, it's time to go again. And I thought it was the morning. <laughs> they were just playing a joke on me. And, uh, you know, I'd slept for 20 minutes and I thought it was morning. Thought, oh man, really? Geez, that didn't seem like a very long sleep. And I kind of rustled out of bed to get going again. And they were just cracking up. Here, buddy, have a beer. Dinner's ready. After a while, you get so exhausted, it's pretty easy to sleep. And I actually had really good rest in this one. Next question from Ben, having had the crash not long prior to the race when coupled with some brain fog, did you notice any moments or days of decision-making were a bit haphazard? Yes. Uh, Several times in this race, I literally got completely lost in the air and that was just totally brain fog. You never feel it. You feel like you're okay, but there were a few times in the race where Ben actually asked me, you know, hey man, how are you doing? I'm fine. What's going on? And he would say, yeah, you don't, you seem pretty spaced out. And there was the day, probably the best, the most fun I had in the race was uh, we were in the valley behind Lermoose. It's where Firebird used to be. And Robbie Whittle used to have Firebird. And it's supposedly the hardest, most difficult, sketchiest place to fly in the Alps. I can't remember the name of that valley. It's the one that leads up to the Worth Pass. So we were between the Lermoose and uh, Santa's turn points and had had this really cool flight the night before off the castle. I'm sure many or all of you saw that. That was insane. It was so cool. And I had this 71 to one glide down the valley. It was completely dark, lightly raining and this epic glide down the valley I made, you know, 15, 20 K and then uh, hiked the rest of that night. And then the next morning, was got caught up with, I actually had a, a glide in the morning and then I got caught up with Addie, the photographer and Robert Bloom, who is the current German FAI world champion, or sorry, German champion for FAI, really, really, really good pilot. And I knew who he was and they caught up with me and, you know, we're not allowed to team fly at all, but we're allowed to fly with recreational pilots. And, um, it was just, to be in a place that I didn't know at all with the German champion and Addy, who's a really good pilot, you know, we hiked up to this launch and I just said, Robert, I'm following you, you know? And he basically took me up to the Worth Pass. We weren't able to get over it. The cloud base was too low. And I came into this ridge with a bunch of wind with just slightly less height than he. He was able to kind of dig out and I wasn't landed. He came down, landed with me and we raced up to the pass. And, you know, so we flew, I don't know, that 25K, but it was insane to just be able to unload my brain and follow someone. And suddenly I was climbing really well and everything was clicking and I was keeping up and um, we were just having a blast. And then we were hiking up to the pass and I thought I was going to get to fly with him. This next section, which is really difficult down to Feldkirk, down to this big gap that you got to make across the the flats over to the Santis Ridge. And uh, he just, he said, Oh, I'm sorry. I just got the call from Addy. Uh, I'm going to have to switch to Marcus. I'm going to have to leave you. And I should have just said, dude, I'll pay a thousand bucks to stay with me. <laughs> but, oh shoot. And so he came into the race van and showed Revis, 
you know, exactly what I needed to do to get through this next section, which was really complicated and a bunch of different moves. Okay. Now round this corner, try to get some, uh, you know, try to get a lee climb and there's no sun, but try to get a lee climb and then cross the valley across to the ski area, top land, hike over to the top. There's a hut up there. Keep flying, you know, keep going down to, I can't remember, uh, can't remember the name of the town, but anyway, towards, towards Santis and, and we mapped it all out and we put it in my phone and I took off and I got this cool climb exactly where he said I would. And, and I just kept flying down that same Valley, looking at my instrument going, why is it telling me to go over? I don't understand it. I just, nothing in the sky made sense. And I totally blew it and, um, ended up slope landing and climbing another 1500 meters up into the clouds and flew again and landed. And I mean, it took me three flights to get out of there when it should have taken me one maybe. And, uh, who knows? It's hard to say. And Revis really thought it ended up working out pretty well, but I just got completely lost, just totally blew it. And that happened several times where I, I, I just couldn't read my phone and yeah, pretty funny. Um, so yeah, there was, there's, uh, stuff's pretty interesting. So yes, it definitely was been pretty haphazard. Uh, what was the funniest moment human team had together? There was two, uh, one of the last days when I was rounding Mont Blanc had this very special flight across Solange and Passy in total darkness. It was not from dark from being dark at night, but just no sun. And you just kept finding these cool convergence lines and milking every little bit of lift and then I did one of these where I had a very easy landing and or I could fly another 200 meters into this kind of unlandable canyon. Flew back in there, of course, as we do. And there's this little tiny field with huge trees. And I just had to arc it up on a wingtip and f come in with a ton of energy. Thought I had the camera on and had it off. And so when I landed, I turned it on. And just as a couple horses approached me and you got to watch the film, it's after the credits, this is a little seven minute film we'll put up here very shortly and it'll crack you up. I'm not real big fan of horses and they were really a big fan of me. And the other ones, when I just told you, <laughs> they woke me up in what I thought was, you know, 440 in the morning to get going. And it was just because I'd fallen asleep while, while uh, Revis was making dinner, but we had a lot of very fun, funny moments. Most of them I can't, uh, repeat on a podcast because they involved a lot of language and a lot of pretty funny stuff but it was we had a blast a to z it was always fun those guys are really good at laughing at me and making fun of me and that keeps everything pretty light so yeah it was it was great stanislav asked is it still fun or when it went to the stage of only professional teams with huge number of people behind them can compete is it in other words it's still fun that the teams are getting so professional with so many supporters. I love following it, but it seems like even more ridiculously hard and impossible than before. That last bit is totally true. I, I think the top 10 at least teams, if not more, are insanely good, insanely fast. It's just a totally different game than it was in my first year in 2015. I keep saying this every time, but you know, Will Gad asked a question here shortly that covers some of this too. Most of the top 10 pilots are all Professional pilots, that's all they do. Uh, they're test pilots. they easily over 300 hours a year. Somebody like Patrick is 500. Yeah, it's still a blast. It's still an amazing adventure. I still love it. This was very clearly going to be the last even before this one started. I just, at my age and the amount of training I have to do, it's, it is ridiculous. And 
even when I did all that, I had a really hard time hanging with those guys and those teams. And so, yeah, think about that long and hard before you apply to the X-Alps. I think, you know, those of us that are on the other side of the pond, we're at a massive disadvantage just, you know, unless you spend so much time over there training as I have and I did before the 2015 race, but it's still nothing compared to those guys and those teams. And so, it's still a blast. It's still the craziest adventure in the world. You still, the race brings you to the most amazing places and you find yourself doing the most incredible and at times stupid things, but it's magnificent. It's the most fun I know how to have. And, you know, if you have a good team like, like we do, it's a blast. Uh, but yes, it is ridiculous. Trey asks, Trey Hackney, my friend, Wyoming asks, I'd like to hear some stories about your top highlights and the flip side, some scary moments or the most challenging situations, flying outside of the standard, reasonable conditions, what that was like and the physical reality of managing the glider when conditions are pushing all the limits. Yeah, I talked about this a little bit, but top highlights for sure. Uh, the flights, I got these little really cool flights between the Akintal turn point, the Kimsey turn point, and you know, let's see, the Laramus turn point when it just looked totally unflyable. Luca and I had this crazy flight out of the clouds leaving the Kimsey and uh, then, you know, just, just went hundreds and hundreds of meters where you couldn't see very much. And uh, then we both popped out and followed each other on this ridge line. It's just beautiful. It just shouldn't be working, but it was. And then the next flight, I didn't let the sun come out long enough and made it across the in valley, landed in a bunch of wind. And then Luca flew over my head and had a really big day. And I ended up having to hike up to a launch with Ben and, uh, and then kind of making it work. I mean, I lost a couple hours on Luca there, but where a lot of people were on the ground and fighting a ton of wind, you know, I was able to piece together these kind of short, really cool, very fun flights through the lakes and the northern Bavarian Alps and uh, make, made a lot of ground that day on Nick because he and I were both kind of on the axe, on the chopping block for the next elimination the next morning. So that kind of, that gave me some breathing room. And then another huge highlight was landing on that snowfield, which is in the film uh, on that proper South Fern day. And, and luckily the snow wasn't isothermic and it was just beautiful. It was amazing up there. It was scary, but really cool. Uh, and then two huge highlights. One was the big day leaving Fish, And when um, Ogie bombed out and I just made massive distance that day in the weirdest, it just, you know, we had a massive tailwind, which I'd never seen in the room. You never get east winds there. And just the flying was, you know, flying over, I was proper in the big Alps there, flying over glaciers and frozen lakes and flying in a ton of wind, but it was working. And I just, that was one of those days where I was screaming in my glider, yeah, baby, we got this. And, and uh, you know, just massive air, huge air. And, you know, I don't think I had much more than tip collapses that day. I was just, you know, just felt like I was really on it, using a ton of bar. My wing and I were one. I didn't rowdy. I just would never fly like that on any. I'd just be no point to go out on a day like that. And but it ended up being the timing was on. I slope landed high before a rainstorm. There was luckily this little cow thing I could tip over my head and stay dry during the rainstorm. And then got another good flight after that. Landed near this 
um, cheese maker's shop and bought some cheese and some sausage off them when it just unleashed a huge hail and mudslides. And I was able to kind of hide under the roof and eat cheese and eat sausage and then get another couple flights that night. Some of that's in the film. Crazy clouds and made up a bunch of distance. Got way ahead of Ogie, so I didn't have to worry about being eliminated anymore. Um, made up a bunch of ground on Theo. Actually made up a bunch of ground on everybody that day. So that was that was very, very special. And then the last really special one was two flights uh, going around Mont Blanc. And this combines with the scary part of it. Actually, the Dent d'Oche day, None of this is on film, unfortunately, but launched one day. We were just trying to do these little valley, these little kind of ridge to ridge crossings. And there was really strong headwind. But if you kept your head down, you could stay underneath it. It was blowing like 50K an hour just above my head. And every time you get to a coal or something, it was just, geez, this is unflyable. This is scary. And you'd go down, get underneath it a little bit and go, oh, it's going to be hairy, but I think we can do it. And I took off. I sat there with Ben for about 20 minutes and you know, there were times where it was swirling. There were times when it was really strong down. We were just very clearly just totally in the rotor, but there were times where it seemed manageable and I waited uh, for it to, you know, to get some kind of upslope wind launched immediately, 20 feet off the ground, lost over half the glider and just immediately spun me right in towards the hill. And looking at Ben just thought, okay, I'm dead and spun the glider hard the other way and landed. And, you know, it was nice, soft grass. Luckily, I didn't hit any rocks. The glider came down hard, packed it away and walked and walked to the next ridge and then flew again. Same kind of conditions. I mean, it was just, you know, Ben said his heart rate didn't even go up. He, I kind of went around the corner so he didn't see me where I landed. And he thought, well, he's either dead, but he's not screaming. So he's either dead or he's okay. Yeah, he's probably okay because you usually are in this race. So, I mean, it's just weird. He, it's just unreasonable. And then... Then that night had the great flight across Solange up into the Cotines Valley. And then the next day, epic hike with Ben up into the pass. You know, we were skiing on our feet and blowing so hard. It was just, this is totally unreasonable. And, but I got kind of a round away from the wind again, launching in total rotor and just to save myself 20 K to fly from one coal to the next. And, you know, as rowdy as it gets, this is in the film. Uh, some of this, the launch was at least, Ben caught it on film. And, uh, you know, had a really scary 20K flight over this big deep valley across to this next coal. And there were people down the coal, there were hikers. This is a day, it was really strong North Fern. And uh, cleared the coal with 300 feet and literally went 300 feet straight to the ground. Just 10 down, 12 down. Um, the glider was flying. It wasn't parachutal, but I had no control of it. And right before I hit the ground, the only thing I was trying to do was land in the snow. There's all this snow and then there was rocks and dirt and I couldn't get it onto the snow. I landed about three feet off the edge of the snow in the dirt. And I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna break my legs. And it was the softest ground. It was just totally soft mud. And as soon as I landed, the wind, the wing just ripped out of my hands. It was blowing 50 miles an hour and uh and was able to pull it in and just sit there for a second and go geez dude i mean how many times are you going to keep doing this and walked over to another coal and walked down a little bit got out of the wind and judged it to just be unflyable sat there for an hour and then revis suggested that i get 
I keep moving around, get away from the rotor more. He thought it'd be potentially flyable. He was reporting some pretty scary conditions down in the valleys, but thought that the uppers would be okay. And launched in maybe the strongest winds I've ever launched in and, uh, and just got plucked and went straight up and flew 50 or 60 K in lovely air. It was, you know, rowdy and very strong, but I could just, again, I could plant myself onto these West facing slopes that also had sun on them and just, and get to where I couldn't hang on anymore and go to, go to the next one. And that worked. Um, until I got to one place that was kind of sticky, slope landed, walked over a little coal. It was you know, hundred meters of climbing, relaunched. At this point, the wind was really easing off and flew another, I don't know, 40 K or so and got to where the valley right before the Macagnaga Valley. So right underneath Monta Rosa, I'd cleared uh, the Matterhorn and everything was going really well. I'd, I'd picked off at that point, Yael and Michael and um because they had taken different routes and michael was kind of stuck at that point he, he was he seemed, i don't know i never got to talk to him i'm not sure what was happening but he wasn't really moving and uh and the next valley had had this big cell blow up in it so it had no sun and the cloud base was way below where i was i was about 3200 at the top of the peaks and i could easily lob into there and i briefly discussed with revis if i should fly down into the Asta instead and avoid that valley but we had the airspace to deal with there and anyway, lobbed into the, the valley before Makagnaga and it, predictably because it had been cloudy for, I don't know how long, but at least as long as I had been able to see it over an hour, um, there was no thermals and no wind, so nothing I could surf. And so I slope landed really quick and did the calculation really quick and they did as well and said, hey, if you book it, you can get up there about 8.40 and get one last final glide into the Makagnaga Valley and you'll be up there at 2,500 meters and you'll get a nice glide. I got up to the top where other athletes had been and it was totally isothermic, deep snow and there was no wind at all. And so my first two attempts at a forward failed. And uh, and then I plucked a line on one on a rock and was just scrambling to get off. I was like, God, I gotta go, I gotta go, I gotta go. And finally did 10 minutes before the cutoff and Revis called and said, you need a two to one or you got to get on the ground. And I was getting this epic glide, you know, way beyond pulley to pulley, just full bar as fast as I could fly and uh, pulled up my maps. And it's been my dream to stay at a refuge, you know, a hut high in one of these. And I read the maps that this, I could see this kind of hut, this building off to my left on top of this ridge line, And it looked like I could make it. And I said, Hey, I'm going to go to this, I'm going to go to this um, hut. And he said, great. And the hut was actually below me now in the bottom of the valley. <laughs> and so I did this fly on the wall, killer slope landing in this little teeny tiny field below the hut and landed and looked at my maps and realized that that wasn't a hut. It was just an abandoned building. The hut was down below and I'd already blown the opportunity to just spiral down. And so soul crushing, but I had to walk down and, uh, 1500 feet. It wasn't a big deal, but a lot, you know, I basically walked down, spent the night at the van and then walked back to the exact same place and flew the next morning. So that was the only problem in an otherwise really, really epic day. Um, so yeah, lots of highlights. You have them every day, lots of big downers too. <laughs> and a lot of really scary ones for sure. And then, you know, the beginning of the race, of course, was not scary. It was just that didn't really work. 
How common were collapses? Uh, I heard from many others that they had a lot, even Kriegel. Um, I flew the Climber 2P. It's an epic wing. I didn't have many. You know, for the most part, I had the one on that launch, uh, which ended up in a crash that, w- that went well. But other than that, in the air, you know, in the really ratty conditions, I don't remember ever losing the wing, actually. It was, it's, it's an amazing wing. Yeah, any situations you might not get out of that you might need to throw several. Uh, definitely had looked at the reserve handle many times in this race, but luckily never did. And uh, but the worst was that one at the coal when clearing Mont Blanc. That was definitely pretty dicey. I'm not sure the reserve would have helped. In fact, it would have been really scary because the wind was so vicious on the ground. I would have gotten towed all over the place without having to cut it. Would be cool to hear more and learn secondhand about the reality of flying in fully extreme conditions like this year presented with such high wind. Hopefully I've covered that. Any valuable lessons or insight you learned this time around about flying in strong rotor? Yeah, I don't know that this needs to be shared necessarily, but you could fly in a lot more wind than you think you can. But man, you're taking a lot of risk. And one thing I learned from Will on the Rockies Traverse is, of course, the safest place to be is right up in the terrain, like right on the terrain, right behind the rotor. This is what Kriegel's learned flying in the cornices and stuff. Um, so yeah, you got to be right on the terrain, and that's scary. And so very often, pushing you know into the lee is pretty hardcore, and you take a bunch of hits. And you'd get in these huge flushes and you just got to stick with it and keep going. And then, of course, you're going to be tighter on the terrain. So I'm just not sure it's reasonable. You know, I'm not sure that kind of risk is, you know, it's definitely not worth it if something happens. But it's, you can handle way more than I thought you can. And, uh, but I certainly don't look forward to it. Gunnar Fries asks, what's the biggest takeaway from the race? What did you learn? God, I certainly learned that we could be stupid. I, the risk is too much. And that was, I've known that from previous events. I don't know if that's changed because I have a daughter and family now. Um, but like Will Gad's experience, we're going to get to Will Gad's question, which is the final one here next. But, you know, he he felt like the race was just too much. It 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 pushes the envelope too much beyond what should be comfortable. And that's, certainly true in this, in this one, in the 21 race. And, um, it's too much and it's certainly beyond what is reasonable for me. Certainly seemed like that was the case for many others, even Kriegel on that flight. You know, I know many of the athletes I spoke to are pretty excited about doing it again. This for me was it. And that's more my age. I just, you know, Ogie's insanely inspiring. God, what a, what a dude, but you know, I learned in this one, I think, of course, you know, there are people that I've beaten in the past that I think I could still be competitive with if things had just rolled a different way for us. Um, I'm not sure that 17th is really where, you know, our, the preparation and the training and stuff puts us. It just, But this is a crazy race. Things happen, you know, good and bad. And so that's where we ended up, which is, I didn't really care about, honestly. I was you know, when we went into this race, the goal was to just stick with the process and have a lot of fun and be safe. And I'm not sure that third one was, and I'm not sure we held to that. You know, um, I know I scared my team several times. Uh, you know, there were some couple of things I did that were just flat out stupid that I kind of did in a brain fog, uh, that could have been really way, way worse. And 
yeah, I'm just not sure I've got the youth and the reaction time and to, to deal with that stuff safely. And I don't think that, I don't think the training that I, the, the training that I do, I don't, I know that, you know, some people can get, get away with doing a lot less, but, you know, I like being able to do 50,000 meters in 12 days, which is what I did. You know, that's six times up Everest. I, you know, I know that I'm not as good a pilot and I know I don't know the Alps nearly as well as most of the teams do. And so I've got to make up for it in other ways. And to do that just requires an insane amount of time and hats off to Ben, my supporter, Ben Abruzzo, who's trained me and also been my supporter in all the races. Um, his training's incredible. He also trained Eduardo, who had an amazing race, who also felt better at the end, of the end than he did in the beginning. And, you know, hopefully we'll see him doing it again. But <clears throat> yeah, so hats off to Ben for the training, but it's just become too unreasonable. It just requires too much time. I hope that answers what did I learn. Will Gad, really enjoy your emphasis on battling well rather than just the results. Question. Almost every pilot in the top 10 is a full-time competition test sponsored pilot. Is it necessary to have test pilot 300 hours plus a year level skills to hit the podium in the X Alps? I'll tackle that one first. Yeah, I think it is. Uh, in 2015, my first one, you could make big mistakes and make huge comebacks. And it was a very different race. It was still a little bit more of an adventure than now. You know, I think Kriegel said after the prologue that when he did the Borns to fly this year, that there were five, six French pilots who applied to the X-Alps who didn't get in. You know, the French are that deep who would have beaten everybody but the top three potentially and, and been in the top three uh, in, the, in the prologue. In other words, you know, in the prologue, we had great flying conditions. And, you know, the, I think I was eighth and I was 20 minutes behind Kriegel and, and Maxime and, and Tommy you know, for a very short race, you know, the Tang guy and some of the, some of the guys that were in the, some of the teams that were in the, in the Borns to fly are exceptionally better pilots than many, according to Kriegel, than many who are in the X Alps. So, I mean, I think the X Alps is definitely attracts some of the best pilots in the world, but there are many, especially in the French and Swiss who are, who don't even make the cut because they're so deep as nations. And, and certainly the top 10 are totally professional and at a completely different level. And, you know, those of us who are 49 are just never going to catch up. You know, I get 300 hours a year, but I'm never going to catch up to it. I'm never going to be the pilot that Maxime is and Kriegel is and Patrick is and Benoit. And, and you know, and Benoit can do 100K on the ground every day and he, he's always running. And, you know, that's just, unbelievable. Um, and so, yeah, I think that this year we really saw in that top 10, you know, the, the skill level is, is remarkable. And if you don't live in Europe and you don't train in Europe and you don't race a ton, I think racing is really important and you don't have that local knowledge of every little piece or at least most of those little pieces of the course, you got a hard road to get in the top 10. I think it's nearly impossible. From what I saw, the launches, landings, and lines flown, it sure looked like pilots better be very comfortable operating way, way outside normal flying conditions. I'm okay with that, but I think this year's tough conditions really emphasize very specialized and high-level skills, or maybe not. What do you think? Yeah, 
tapped on this in some of the other questions. Obviously, many of you saw that, and that's why you're asking about it. it it's extraordinarily extreme. And uh, what more can I say about it? I, I, I just, I think that every pilot in this race, you know, I mean, look at Cody. He's our, maybe our best acro pilot in the U.S. right now. He's, you know, very regularly in the top 10 in the World Cups. Is very safe and and capable, talented, hardworking pilot. And, you know, it was just this, the extreme of this was too much. And I totally get it. And Lori, same thing, you know top 10 in the super final last year. She's an awesome pilot who really knows how to race well, had an incredibly talented team. Yael, same thing. Uh, Michael Vichy was her supporter, you know, one of the best in the world. You're going up against the best of the best and the conditions, I think, really challenged everybody, even Kriegel in this one. And uh, I guess that's just not to be taken lightly. And so I don't think it's reasonable to tackle something like this unless you have a mindset of totally be willing to walk and not racing the others, unless you're a totally professional pilot. And the other big one is that most of these guys that are certainly in the top 10 are also doing all the other races. Kriegel went from this one to what are five days later competing in the Eiger, which had really bad weather and he still won it. So, you know, most of these teams are, over there competing in hike and fly year round. You know, they're doing one after the other, after the other. And that experience really adds up. That's it folks. I hope I answered those well enough. I'm still a bit in a brain fog. Thank you all for your awesome questions. And uh, if you've got more, send more. I'll do what I can about answering them in future shows. Thanks everybody. And I hope you enjoyed the, uh, the epic race and the big show and our efforts and hope you watch the film take a look out for that we'll post it up everywhere it's a lot of fun and ben horton shot all of it except some of my pov and he's he's a real pro it was awesome having him on the team and handling a lot of the content this year thanks everybody appreciate it see you on the next one If you find the cloud-based mayhem valuable, you can support it in a lot of different ways. You can give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you get your podcast. That goes a long ways and helps spread the word. You can blog about it on your own website or share it on social media. You can talk about it on the way up to launch with your pilot friends. I know a lot of interesting conversations have happened that way. And of course, you can support us financially. This show does take a lot of time, a lot of editing. A lot of storage and music and all kinds of behind-the-scenes cost. So if you can support us financially, all we've ever asked for is a buck a show. And you can do that through a one-time donation through PayPal, or you can set up a subscription service that charges you for each show that comes out. We put a new show out every two weeks. So, for example, if you did a buck a show and every two weeks, it'd be about $25 a year. So way cheaper than a magazine subscription and it makes all of this possible. Uh, I do not want to fund this show with advertising or sponsors. We get asked about that uh, pretty frequently, but 
I, for a whole bunch of different reasons, which I've said many times on the show, I don't want to do that. I don't like having that stuff at the front of the show. And I also want you to know that these are authentic conversations with real people. And these are just our opinions, but our opinions are not being skewed by sponsors or advertising dollars. I think that's a pretty toxic business model. So I hope you dig that. Um, you can support us. If you go to cloudbasedmayhem.com, you can find the places to support. You can do it through patreon.com forward slash cloudbasedmayhem. If you want a recurring subscription, you can also do that directly through the website. Uh, we've tried to make it really easy, and that will give you access to all the bonus material, a little video cast that we do and extra little uh, nuggets that we find in conversations that don't make it into the main show, but we feel like you should hear. We don't put any of that behind a paywall. If you can't afford to support us then just let me know and i'll set you up with an account of course that'll be lifetime and hopefully and you're being in a position someday to be able to support us but you'll find all that on the website uh, all of you who have supported us or even joined our newsletter or bought cloud-based mayhem merchandise t-shirts or hats or anything you should be all set up you should have an account and you should be able to access all that bonus material now thank you so much for listening i really appreciate your support and we'll see you on the next show thank you